right? If you're overwhelmed and anxious and distracted, right? You're not really engaged because by definition, engagement is an emotion. Do you ever wonder? Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to live an extraordinary life? Or is that only for people with exceptional beauty, brains, or talent? I know you are extraordinary. But when I look at me in the mirror, well... Ordinary. 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 Ordinary is all I see. Certainly, life has to be more extraordinary than what I've experienced so far. We all feel like this sometimes, but we don't have to. If you believe that your life and everyone's life can be more connected, more inspired, more fulfilling, then you're in the right place. Welcome to this Extraordinary Life podcast. I'm Kevin Monroe, and together we're going to discover life is extraordinary. extraordinary. Do little things really make that big of a difference? For me, being extraordinary is more of a choice. There is something truly remarkable about that. Are you looking for a place where people are more interested in who you are? Who you are? Who you are? Put in the extra in the ordinary. That's what extraordinary is all about. I want to live an extraordinary life. How about you? It's that time again, the time I get to welcome you to this Extraordinary Life podcast. Whether this is my first time welcoming you, or it's that same time every week when we get to connect, I'm thrilled to have you join me now. Seriously, I am. Today is going to be awesome. This conversation has been months in the making and may be one of the first by request episodes of the podcast. What do I mean by by request episode? Well, one of you, my friends and faithful listeners, in this case, this Extraordinary Life community member, Arlene Mendoza, sent me a text on a Saturday months ago saying, here's a show for you. She shared the details of a Brene Brown podcast, Unlocking Us. And she said, I just had to share. Well, listen, I did, and instantly I was hooked. Then I devoured both the Audible and Kindle versions of the book, and I'm thrilled to have Dr. Mark Brackett, founder and director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, and author of Permission to Feel, joining us today. And wow, what uncanny timing for a conversation to help you, me, explore emotions because chances are really good that you're feeling something today, perhaps more strongly than you have in a while. Here we go. Dr. Mark Brackett, welcome to this Extraordinary Life podcast. What can I say? I am thrilled, ecstatic, euphoric, elated, and exhilarated to have you join me, to join us for this conversation. Well, that's an impressive emotion vocabulary if I've ever heard one. <laughs> well, where might I have gotten in touch with that kind of emotion vocabulary? Where might have you gotten in touch with it? That's right. Oh, maybe there's some book that you read called Permission to Feel. Maybe there's a book and maybe there's the mood meter. And, and I actually have the mood meter labels open in front of me at this moment. Yeah, I loved your book, Mark. And I just shared what and how I'm feeling in this moment. So I'd love to ask, what about you? How would you label your feelings right now? You know, I'm a little envious of how you're feeling because I don't think I'm as a, I'm in that yellow quadrant, you know, as you are. I'll be honest, it's Monday, right? It's Monday. Yeah. I have been all over the place. And so I'm excited to be here with you right now. I'm anxious about what's going on in the world. A little fearful about the next couple of weeks or actually next week. And so, yeah, I would say that I'm a little bit more emotionally all over the place. 
Well, okay. So to be honest, I am emotionally all over the place. Why I am so high yellow right now is because of this conversation. Yes. So if you focus in on the here and the now, like if you focus, if I can just like forget about everything else going on, I'm feeling focused and eager. Awesome. Awesome. And folks, you listening, this is an, uh, kind of setting the stage for what's going to follow in this conversation today. But before we go there, you who are regulars, you know what's coming next. So Mark, what is something that you're grateful for in this moment as you and I are connecting for this conversation? What's fresh gratitude for you now? Fresh gratitude for me is that people like you are interested in the work that I do and want to make it available to a wider audience. Mm, Wow. Okay, so I'm grateful for people like you helping us, helping me and others like us. So I've told you this, This Extraordinary Life is a podcast that's connected to a community called This Extraordinary Life Community. It's actually members of our community that turned me on to you and your work. I remember the day Arlene Mendoza called or messaged me and said, you must listen to this episode of Brene Brown's podcast. And I believe it's the first episode I'd ever listened to. You were pretty early on there. And it was that episode of Unlocking Us. And before the podcast episode was over, Mark, I had bought the Audible version. I'd bought the Kindle version. And I started listening to the book on my way home from that trip that day. Permission to feel. I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, well, you're welcome. Thank you for the book. And it is. There there are questions that I really want to dig in with you. And I told you this just a moment ago. This, and you referenced this in, so we are recording this on Monday, October 26th, just to put this in the history books for people. And Mark said he's a little anxious about the next couple of weeks. Now, what's interesting is we are releasing this episode on Election Day, United States Election Day. This might just be the most emotionally intense and tense election season we've experienced in a while. And it's in a year that I believe has earned its label of unprecedented, right? (laughs) Never seen anything like it. Everybody that's listening to this, whenever they are listening to it, they're experiencing some level of emotion. How is it helpful to drill a little deeper to understand what emotions we're feeling and what that allows us, how that allows us to respond? You know, as we say, emotions are the drivers of almost everything in life. Think about it, like how you feel drives whether or not you're going to listen to me during this podcast, right? If you're overwhelmed and anxious and distracted, right, you're not really engaged because by definition engagement is an emotion if you were like me as a kid you know running around with a lot of fear and anxiety and stress you're not engaged in learning you're in survival mode and so the first is that our emotions are the drivers of our attention and then the list goes on to our decision making to our relationships think about that have you ever worked with someone who is emotionally dysregulated I think so, but explain what emotionally dysregulated means for just They yell, they scream, they're not not really care about your feelings, they have temper tantrums. My first boss was like that. Yeah. And so when you were working for that boss and you got up in the morning and you subconsciously even anticipated how you would feel at work, it probably wasn't like inspired, excited, right? It was probably like dread and frustration. And that feeling, right, drives your motivation. It drives the relationships that you have with people because we tend to run away from people who make us feel very uncomfortable. The fourth is our physical and mental health. Think about it, how we, environments, for example, have feelings. Like work, our workplaces have an emotional climate. And that climate, like how people feel in the collective, if I ever describe like five emotions that you would use to talk about your workplace, people would say things like toxic or inspiring, overwhelming or challenging. And, you know, that feeling that you get every day drives your own emotional states. And in turn, it drives your health. Because when you're stressed at work, right, cortisol levels are higher, 
sympathetic nervous system is aroused and activated more. And, you know, that puts a toll on your immune system, on your concentration, and the list goes on. And then finally, something that I become increasingly more interested in is creativity. Emotions are the fuel of our creative process. And what's interesting is that not everybody who is creative is successful or can complete their product. And what we find is that that's where the emotional intelligence comes in because the journey to our success is replete with a lot of emotion, strong emotion, harsh feedback, anger, disappointment, frustration, overwhelm, etc. And what I find, even working at a place like Yale, where everyone has extraordinarily high test scores, is that if they don't have the skills to deal with their feelings, they oftentimes don't achieve their dreams. Oh, there's so many things you've said that I want to unpack. But that last one, the recency of that perhaps hit me. Maybe it was because you tied it to the living out of your dreams. Let's go a little deeper on that one, please. Yeah, so I'll consider myself, I'll say, moderately successful. And I still feel like I have a long ways to go to achieve my dreams. But, you know, the journey to get to where I'm at today was only in part an intellectual journey. Mm. I wouldn't say I'm the brightest crayon in the box, you know. I'm smart, but I'm not like a super smarty. I've met people who are like, wow, your brain just operates in a very different way than mine does. And that's fine. And I'm a little envious once in a while of how people's brains operate, but I can manage that. But I think about all of the ins and outs and ups and downs and ebbs and blows and turns and twists. And the people who have wanted to sabotage my success, the people who were my own parents, you know, like, why would you want to be a professor? You know, you're going to be broke the rest of your life. <laughs> no one's a business. And it's like, okay, how do I sift that feedback? Because you want to believe what your parents tell you. But if your parents haven't had enough experience in the world, then it's hard to trust their views. Like my school counselor in high school, I wasn't a great student because of my own trauma in childhood. I really did not concentrate well and I had terrible bullying in school. I knew I was smart, but I couldn't, I couldn't do well academically. And so my guidance counselor was like, oh, you know, you probably shouldn't apply here. You're not going to get in there. And it just reinforced, my goodness, I guess I'm not that smart. And so I'm blessed that over the trajectory of my life, I've learned to be a very good listener, but a really good sifter of information. Because a lot of people, I believe, whether they're conscious of it or not, have power over your decision-making, have power over your self-talk, you know, in terms of you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're too fat, you're too skinny, the list goes on. And if you don't learn how to discern, then oftentimes you're living a reality that's defined by other people. Okay, so there's a line from your book, towards the end of the book, actually, I believe, that, that taps into this. And, you know, I thought, why not just go for the jugular from the beginning? Go for it. Motion skills are the key to unlocking the potential inside each one of us. I think this is what we were just talking about, this with the dream. How do emotion skills help us become a better sifter of info? Like you said, you've become. Is it emotions? That it, is it e emotion skill that has allowed you to sift out some of those really unhelpful comments from others? It is because I'm on a journey to create an emotion revolution. My dream, right, is to create an emotion revolution in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our communities, in society. Why not the whole world? And, you know, there are a lot of people who, I'll give you an example. So I was being interviewed for a show the other day, a television show, and I was talking about my own childhood, which had some serious trauma. And the person was like, can we just talk about the science now? And I was like, sure, thank you for just like cutting me off as I'm like sharing my like life story. Sharing my soul to the world. Exactly, better said. And I was able to, you know, I can switch and I'm an adult and I'm skilled and I can whatever and move on. But it made me realize, you know, the discomfort this person had, you know, with feeling. And you need to know where to go with my feelings. And I see that everywhere I go. I see that in my work in schools, which is where I spend most of my time, our lack of success 
was not because of our content. It was because the adults who were implementing didn't have the skills to implement. Whoa. <laughs> Will you repeat that? I want to unpack this one as well, Mark. Wow. So it wasn't for lack of content. No, I have more content than you could ever dream up in terms of like lessons on emotional intelligence. And, but what happened was that the educators early on were anxious about delivering the instruction because they were unsure about how they would handle their own feelings and the feelings of the students as they were talking about feelings. So for example, I remember vividly, I'm not going to bring up the word anxiety in my classroom. You know, I'm anxious. My father was anxious. And like, we're just not going to open up that can of worms. And I was like, but like the kids are feeling anxious and they need someone to talk about it. And so we weren't successful because of the lack of emotion skills of the adults who were raising and teaching kids. Wow. To what degree is this prevalent? That if I don't acknowledge it, it's not there. Right. I mean, this sounds like what the teacher, I don't want to talk about anxiety because I feel it. It's really uncomfortable to talk about. So let's just ignore it. I mean, that's not really helping. I mean, think about how many people live in abusive relationships. They see the abuse every day, but they're for some reason or another, not capable of talking about the problem with their partner or a therapist or able to deal with the feelings that they might have if they separate or if they confront. I just think that the emotion piece is what's behind our success and the life that you just always wanted to have but never were able to get out of your own way to have. Okay, so this is so rich, so deep. There's so many places to depths to plumb here. So let me just think a moment, Mark. Yeah. Hmm. Is there a cluster of emotions or a... Uh, trifecta or, or some pairing of emotions that most get in our way? Well, I think, you know, it goes to emotions are experiences. And so one thing I'd like to say up front or up middle is that there's no such thing as a good or bad or positive or negative emotion. We tend to label them that way because of the way we've been brought up. Happy is good. Anger is bad, right? Anxiety, bad. Pride, okay come, okay. And I think we need to wipe away that notion. With that said, I think a lot of people get addicted to positive emotions. They just strive to be happy and they, whether it's addictive behavior or spending money or having relationships, whatever it might be, that they're kind of addicted to that euphoria, that sense of pleasure. And so that's why you can't say a positive emotion is necessarily positive all the time because addiction to positive emotions can lead you down a path of serious challenges. At the same time, we are oftentimes grossly afraid of so-called negative emotions. For example, right here, right now, elections, coronavirus. I always tell people, they always, how are you feeling, Mark? I'm like, I am a mess. <laughs> like I am an anxious overwhelmed, angry mess. That sounds judgmental, actually, so I'm going to take that back. But I, you know, it's kind of that way. But my point is that I'm okay with it. This is the reality. The truth is, tremendous amount of uncertainty between our government and like how we are dealing with distancing and masking around health in our nation. And so like, if you're not anxious about that, I think there's something wrong, personally. But again, it's not that the emotion is bad or good. It's information. It's saying there is uncertainty, unpredictability, a lack of control. And my question is, so how do I deal with that experience? And, you know, I've got my strategies. I can tell you right now that 500 emails in the last two days that I haven't responded to, unfortunately, because I'm overwhelmed by email, are from people who are chronically overwhelmed and freaking out about their own feelings of anxiety that they can't manage. And I think it's because we have not given people an emotion education. And so their mindsets are, they have feelings about their feelings. I'm a bad person. I'm a weak person because I'm anxious. And I think that's the starting point for allowing your emotions to have way too much power over you. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I, I started thinking about this 
And even before I had seen your book, knew your book existed, I saw an emotion wheel chart that our, I think at that point in time, four-year-old granddaughter brought home. That's cool. It is cool. And it was like, oh, wow. And you say, I know that a lot of your work is with children. I love that children are receiving this education now. Let's talk about that just a moment. What what you're doing with children. Yeah, let's talk about that. There's another question coming, but let's start there. I got involved in this work because I hated school. I was a failing student. I was terribly bullied. And I didn't want kids to have that experience. For example, I could remember vividly being in sixth grade math and being horrifically bullied by kids. And the teacher I knew saw what was happening and they did nothing. I still to this day wonder like, okay, what was the reason for this? Was it A, you know, Mark needs to toughen up and, you know, he better just learn the hard way. B, is like the teacher's just an evil jerk. Or C, I don't know what to do about this. So I'm just going to like pretend it doesn't exist. I don't know which one it was. I see those three things happen all the time, by the way. there are, I see cases of all three. And so I got out and I was blessed in life that I had an uncle, uncle. who was a teacher, Uncle Marvin, who is my hero. Uncle Marvin was a middle school teacher by day and a band leader by night in the Catskill Mountains of New York State. And by some wave of a very beautiful magic wand was writing a curriculum to teach kids about their feelings. And because he realized as a social studies teacher that his students were bored in school. And he said, well, when I'm playing you know, in the, in the club at night, everybody's like feeling it. But then I go to teach my sixth grade social studies class and everybody's like, oh, and what's the missing link? Well, it's feelings. And so he decided to write a curriculum to connect students' personal emotional lives to the emotional lives of the characters in history as a pathway to engage them in the learning process. Pretty freaking incredible. And when I think about it, sometimes I'm like, oh my goodness, how amazingly cool that was as a teacher back in the 60s and 70s. Anyhow, when I disclosed my own trauma, my uncle happened to have been there for me. And he inspired me from when I was 13 years old to become an emotion scientist. And I didn't know what that was, but I quickly... He actually used that word? No, that's my word. (laughs) And so long story short is in my 20s, I graduate from college. I still don't know what the heck I'm doing with my life. And my uncle and I, I pull him out of retirement and we write a curriculum for middle schoolers to help them have emotional literacy, as we called it then. And that's when the journey began working in the schools. And it started off in middle school and now it's preschool to high school and college and workplaces. But I share that with you because A, my only goal was to help kids in the beginning. But going back to what I said earlier, what I realized very soon after starting the work with my uncle was that the adults who are raising and teaching kids had had no emotion education and they were not equipped to do it. So while I care about kids, honestly, it's about the adults being the best possible role models for them. And then they can do the instruction to help kids develop their skills. Oh, Mark, I am enjoying this conversation. I want to go deeper on that, but we've got something to share with our listeners and we'll be right back. So welcome back. You listening. If you hear children's voices and laughter in the background, I was just asking Mark during the break. He's right next to a playground. They've built an after-school program outside his building. And you may hear a little bit of that. I hope those are all positive emotions I'm hearing. I hear so we were just talking. I love, I love that children today are learning and getting this rich emotional vocabulary and understanding. And people in our community, a couple of them, they, they wanted to make sure I ask and we have a conversation. What about the adults? We don't want the adults left out. The ones about the adults. Pardon? It's all about the adults. So what's the hope and help for adults who didn't learn this rich, robust emotional vocabulary earlier in life? The good news is that the areas of our brain that are responsible for developing the skills 
of emotional intelligence, which I haven't even talked about yet, right? That skill of emotion perception, of recognition, the skill of understanding the causes and consequences, the skill of labeling precisely, the skill of expressing, the skill of regulating emotion, R-U-L-E-R is the acronym that we use, that those are skills that can be learned well up into our 70s and 80s. You know, as a matter of fact, just a quick story aside, my father, who was in my childhood, I would not call him emotionally intelligent at all. He loved me, he cared about me, but he had no skills in managing his feelings whatsoever. It was pretty bad. And he got a little kind of slowed down a little bit in the 60s and 70s. But when he turned about 75, a lot of the anger came back. And his wife, my mom passed away when I was young. Did I say my wife or my mother? My mother passed away, his wife. His wife, yeah. And so he remarried, nice, really lovely woman. And she was like, she called me on the phone. She's like, Mark, I can't take it. Your father's really angry and mean all the time. And I was like, oh gosh, I remember those days. And she's like, I really need your help. I think I need to, I might have to divorce him. I'm like, oh my goodness, if you divorce him, that means he's going to come live with me. (laughs) You know, road trip. And the long story short is that I took my father out for coffee. And I was just like, dad, what's going on? I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. And what I learned that he couldn't take anymore was that his wife was babysitting for her grandchildren a lot. And my father's perception of that was that that was a waste of her time. And also he was lonely and left out. And so I said, dad, you know, what I think you might be feeling is jealousy. Mm. And he's like, jealousy? You're telling me I'm jealous of these three months old? I'm like, no, you're telling me that, but I'm labeling it for you. And anyhow, it was jealousy because he was quote-unquote, angry, that she was spending more time with the kid than with him. The reason why I tell you the story is that at 75 years old, my father just started crying in the coffee shop. And he said, what am I going to do about this? I said, well, let's talk about it. You know, what's your strategy? And that's when he started thinking about, A, his wife has the permission to babysit whoever the heck she wants. It's her grandkids. Like, who are you to tell her that she can't spend time with them? B, how are you going to deal with your feelings when you're feeling left out because she's spending time with them and not you? And so it was just a very rich conversation. What I love about the story is about a month later, his wife called me. She's like, Mark, I don't know what you did in that coffee shop, but it really worked. He's a different person. And so I say that story as a sign of hope because a lot of people feel as if You can't learn these skills later on in life. And I tell you, I didn't feel like I could learn these skills even when I started learning them because of my trauma in my childhood, of my problems with anxiety. I just felt like I was an emotional kind of anxious mess and that that defined who I was as an emotionally intelligent or unintelligent person. And then when I started realizing that your proclivity towards experiencing strong emotions is not the same thing as your skill at dealing with your emotion, everything changed. The degree of with which you experience a strong emotion is not correlated to your ability to deal with that emotion. Correct. Let's talk about that because I think a lot of people, they feel it strongly and then I guess they feel I'm, I'm lost to that, right? That's the way I felt for most of my life. I felt like because I was struggling as a kid for many reasons, for gender, sexual orientation, identity stuff, having been abused, bullied, and I was just like exploding with emotions. And I would have, sometimes I'd have panic attacks. I would have crying episodes for long periods of time, feelings of et cetera, despair. And I even went for therapy. But the therapist, I would just, at that time, just talk about my relationship with my mother. You know, like, I gotta, like, I'm like, after three years of this, like, I need something else. And so like, I was like, but how do I deal with my feelings about my mother? Yeah, the insights are good, but I need actual strategies and skills. And how do I deal with my self-esteem? And how do I deal with my anger and my frustration and my fear? And then I realized there was a whole area that was kind of unexplored, which was there's actually these skills of emotional intelligence. And that just because I felt these feelings didn't mean they had to have complete power over my everyday existence. And so now when I'm having my anxiety, I take my breath and I'm like, all right, Mark, like, is it anxiety or is it fear or is it stress? Or are you overwhelmed? Like, how are you really feeling? Oh, 
you're overwhelmed. So you need to do this today. Oh, you're anxious. You got to do this today. You're stressed. Oh, you got to do this today. Because every feeling has a different trajectory, you know, in terms of what you do to support yourself in either accepting that feeling, which is important for all emotions, and then also shifting out of that feeling to feel something else that might be more helpful. Okay. Every feeling has a different trajectory. And through the mood meter, I, I want to talk about that a little bit in this label. I believe, counted correctly, you've identified, you and your team have identified 100 emotions in these four quadrants. Well, that's just the ones that we chose to put in the mood meter. Okay. I, we're doing a study right now at our center. We've identified 18,000 emotion words. Wow, 18,000. No, 100 is just the starting point. Well, let's talk about these 100 then and the four quadrants and just how that, just tapping into the tip of this iceberg, 100 of 18,000, how much that helps us on this ruler journey. Well, I think what happens is that because we are not taught to be granular about our inner lives, we're taught to be granular about a lot of other things. Like, for example, I mean, I have no memory of it because I couldn't stand it. But when I was in high school and I had to take certain chemistry classes or biology classes, you know, I had to remember like 15,000 kind of fungi. That's really <laughs> helpful for my career in life. And, you know, no offense to the biologists who are listening, but like, let's get real here. Like, I think in this real scheme of things, having a nuanced language to describe your everyday life experiences is slightly more important. <laughs> Then having to know the differences between and among different fungi or amoeba, it sounds very judgmental. And it is. So I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's okay. I would agree with you on this one. Yeah. And I, if you're interested in biology, then go for it. You better learn those words. But everyone deserves the right to have self-awareness because those biologists have to get married or have to be in relationships and have to and maybe have kids, right? And so... The mood meter, what I love about it, and I always give credit to my colleague, David Caruso, who really inspired me with this project because he was doing this before I did with people in the workplace. And then when he and I worked together, we built out the one that's more for schools and the color quadrants. But long story short is that you take everything that's going on inside your head, which is like right now, like as we've said, I'm, you know, I'm, like, I'm over here about this and I'm feeling that about this. And you're like, okay. Am I pleasant or am I unpleasant? Let's just get simple here. What's my core experience? Am I feeling highly pleasant or highly unpleasant or somewhere in between? What's my physical and mental energy like? Is it, am I highly energized or am I depleted? Okay. And then you take those two axes and you cross them to create your mood meter. You got the top right, yellow, high energy, pleasant, excited, elated, ecstatic, all those feelings you were having. You get the green, and those are pleasant emotions, but they have lower energy, calm, content, tranquil, peaceful, relaxed. And then you get the blue and the red, which are, quote unquote, unpleasant emotions. Blue, lower left, down, disappointed, sad, lonely, hopeless, despair. And then you got our upper red, which is the anxiety family. So from uncomfortable to nervous to panicked to the anger family, peeved, irritated, angry, livid, enraged. And the reason why I think it's so important is that for most of us, we're kind of combusting with emotions. And if we can take a step back and just say, okay, what quadrant might I be in right now? Don't put words to it yet. Just do a gross kind of awareness, like I'm pleasant with a lot of energy. Oh, yellow. I'm unpleasant with a lot of it. Oh, red. Okay, well, what's going on for me right now? I'm being interrogated. Oh, or I realized that I forgot to do something, or I just won an award. All right, so what might you be feeling? Oh, I'm excited, I'm terrified, I'm whatever. And so that's the R, the, what that does in terms of what I just explained is it helps you identify your feeling states, right? You go from axes to quadrants to the reasons why you might've thought you were there to then help finding the right words. And then the E and the R say, okay, well, can I be my true feeling self with this person or this group? Do I have to, can I express my feelings? I don't have to mask them or suppress them. And then what do I want to really do with this feeling? Do I want to stay here or do I want to shift? Oftentimes, for example, this is no offense to you, my friend, Kevin, but you know, I talk a lot about my work. You know, I get interviewed a lot. And so 
there are days when I'm like, I look at my calendar, I'm like, oh my goodness, I have to talk about the mood meter again. <laughs> but I need to like go like moved and like get a new career because if I talk about this one more time, I'm going to lose it. I don't have that often, but you know, there are weeks and days that I'm just like not in the mood. Mm-hmm. Have you ever felt that way? I guess not in the mood to do what you want to do. Absolutely. But I'm on this mission of creating the emotion revolution. <laughs> so, but that's my strategy. Do you see I'm getting it? So I'm like, all right, Mark, you may have to repeat yourself this week more than you'd like to, but think about it. It's like, you're going to reach everyone who listened to this extraordinary life. So maybe reappraise your disinterest or lack of motivation. Maybe reappraise it as an opportunity to spread the principles of emotional intelligence. And then all of a sudden I'm like, all right, let's go. Like, come on, Kevin, keep going. Does this make sense? It makes perfect sense, Mark. It makes perfect sense. And it goes back to, I want to ask about you and your mission. I don't know if I knew that I'd heard your mission was to create an emotion revolution. Yeah. I'll just remind you, you know this, but you can't do that with one stump speech, right? You can't just get up once and say this and go, check, I've launched an emotion revolution. Now on to the next thing on my dream list. I know that's been 20 years. What does that look like? Why? What do you want to see different about the world as this emotion revolution takes hold? All right. So now you're now you're pushing me. I want to see. Did you just move in a different box? No. Well, you're forcing me to be more reflective than I anticipated. What I want to see is every single child have the opportunity to achieve their dreams. And I do a lot of running around the world. For example, going back to my work in education in New York City, for example, where we're working with many of the public schools there, there are about 1.1 million children living in poverty. And it's like 1.1 million children, most of whom are living in poverty. Like that's kind of mind blowing when you think about it. In one city. In one city. And so I think about my life and yeah, I was sexually abused as a child. It was terrible. I had bullying. Terrible. I suffered a lot, but I had Uncle Marvin. My parents did know to get me a therapist. I did become a martial arts instructor. I did go to college. I did have Uncle Marvin come back into my life as a young adult, and we wrote a curriculum, and I got a career at Yale as a professor and have been doing this work now for 20 years. And so I feel unbelievably fortunate that I've been able to sublimate all of the trauma into something that I feel and hope is making a difference in the world. But when I look at these 1.1 million kids, I have to say to myself, what are the odds for that child to have the same pathway that I had? And I don't see a guarantee. And I'm not going to sleep well at night until I know that's guaranteed. And then we move from school to home to workplace, because all of those domains are interconnected and interrelated. It never stops and starts. It just continues. And then you think about it. For those people who are lucky to have careers that they want to have, and then you get into, for example, I'm a director of a center. We have 60 people at the Center for Emotional Intelligence. I'm very proud of my team, and they work hard. And there are a lot of different personalities, and people have different needs. And all the same stuff that happened in kindergarten and middle school and high school, it shows up in the workplace. You know, you've got to be careful about favoritism. You've got to be careful about how you spend time with different people. You've got to be careful about the words you choose to use to give people feedback. You've got to be careful about everything because everybody has feelings. Just like we had feelings in school, we have feelings at work. And what my research and our team's research shows is that how people feel at work matters for a lot of things, like productivity, like the quality of relationships, like ethical behavior. And what we also show is that that varies as a function of the emotional intelligence of the person they report to. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure your research shows this, that what happens at work doesn't stay at work, right? The experience at work tees that person up for the journey home that evening. Yeah. People think we can compartmentalize. It's hard. And in some of the schools that I work with, 
I remember I said, what's your strategy? And the teacher said, oh, I just check my feelings at the door. I'm like, you are full of it. <laughs> that just does not happen, right? It just that's not the way our brains operate. Well, it's just like you can't leave what happened at home when you go to work, which some workplaces want to encourage people to do that. Anyone who's a parent knows that if they have a child who is sick or a mother or a parent who's in the hospital, it affects their productivity at work, right? You can't just separate. We are one creature. Oh, Mark, you know, I'm watching our time. I wish we had another hour and a half. We don't. A couple of questions I do want to make sure we get to before our time All right. runs out. One is, yeah, I want to hear, hear this one first, because this Extraordinary Life is not only a podcast, it's a community. I remember reading, we may acquire some of those skills by osmosis, by watching and emulating others who possess them. But for the most part, they must be taught and they are best learned in communities. So what is it about community that spurs us on, on a quest to become more emotionally rich and vibrant adults? Well, I wanted to say it can work and it goes in both ways. So, well, yes, as we've seen in our own country right now, there's been more bullying. And I think it's because of reasons that I won't go into great detail, but we're witnessing a lot more aggression and bullying on television, in government, in our community. So it gives other people the permission to bully. And so I like to think of it as a, the opposite way, which is that for me, and I'll just use another personal example, I think that will help make it clear. So as a kid, you know, I explained some of my trauma. My parents did not know what to do, but they knew to get me a therapist. So that's something. They didn't know how to support me themselves, but they put me in a therapist. So here you take the individual, which is Mark Brackett, and you put him into ping pong therapy, you know, the play therapist, you know, at 10 years old. And the guy was great. I still remember him. I, you know, I'm sure we had wonderful conversations. But then Mark got dropped back into a family where there was a lot of tension. Mother had anxiety problems. Father had anger dysregulation problems. So like no role modeling of anything with emotional intelligence there. And then Mark went to school and got bullied. The adults there weren't playing by the emotional intelligence kind of guidelines. Then I went to after school program. I was bullied because of being overweight as a kid in that setting. And so you can't pull an individual out and help them to develop emotional intelligence because these are skills that are embedded in context. And so you need parents who are role models. You need coaches on sports teams who are role models. You need teachers who are role models because the more members of your community who are demonstrating the skills of emotional intelligence, the more opportunities you have to learn from them. I just had an epiphany. So listening to you, one of my favorite phrases that, that we use a lot is better together. But I also realize it's just as easy, perhaps even easier to be worse together, depending on the community you're part of and the power of the pull in that community. Does it normalize bullying and does it normalize and minimize people? as individuals. Exactly. I'm going to have to think about that one some more. I love it when I leave a podcast conversation and it rolls over in my mind for days and weeks. And Mark, I have a feeling this is one of those. A couple of other thoughts. You, you talked about emotions are the fuel of our creativity. Yeah. I know that workplaces around the world are longing for greater creativity inside their businesses. What's the connection in and how could emotions and emotion, the ruler skills, help them have greater creativity in their organizations? Well, I think it has to do with the goal of the creativity, because there's many forms of creativity. There is, you know, the brainstorming aspects of creativity, right? Coming up and generating ideas. That's a big part of creativity. And so what emotions best serve you to generate those ideas? And then there's the honing in of like which creative idea is the one that you should really work on? And that's a different set of emotions that help you figure that out. And then there's the process so that you have to go through to whatever it is, if you're going to build something as an architect or you're going to paint something as an artist or you're going to create a company. And so that then is the creative kind of components of like all the details that you have to go through to like really put this thing together and what kind of emotion kind of mindset is best for that. And then there's the communication strategy, 
Because what I've seen in the world of creativity is that there are a lot of really creative people who generate a lot of creative things, but nobody knows about it because they don't have the skill to get it out there. They don't have the skill to sell it, to market it, to convince people that what they're doing is original and novel. And so you have to think about, well, what skills do you need to do that part of the work? And so it's never just like emotions and creativity. It's about which emotions are best for which kinds of creativity. You know, for example, if you want to write a powerful essay around the injustices in our nation around racial inequality, probably being happy is the wrong place to be. Inducing some anger and remembering the times in your life when you felt those injustices and channeling that into that powerful essay would probably be useful. If you're writing a very deep poem about your sorrow and your pain and the and the deep empathy you might have had for someone at one point in your life, maybe getting into that blue project would be helpful. If you're designing a poem or a meditation kind of affirmation where you're going to bring people into that green quadrant to be calm, content, and tranquil, maybe that green is better. And if you're trying to do some kind of inspirational speech where you're going to make people kind of like, get on your bus, maybe the yellow is best. So do you see what I'm getting at here? It's I do. It's very important to, to distinguish until figure out what emotions are going to best serve the creative process and product, and then try to create those emotions for that. So uh, one thing I hear you saying is that we need a rich palette of colors, emotions with which to operate, to create, to paint, whatever that is. That we're, The more robust and rich our palette of emotions are, the more we have to work with. If we're impoverished and we're, and we're very limited and we have three, four, five, which is what a lot of us grew up with of emotions. Fine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. There's so many more questions I wish I could ask. Let me ask you this. Permission to feel. Was that the original title? Was that a working title? What, what was it that led you to that title? And why do we need permission to feel? Gets back to your point about communities because... I do not believe I had the permission to be my true, full feeling self as a child. My abuser, for example, threatened me and said things like, you can't talk about this. You'll get hurt. My, my, your family will be hurt. My parents, who love me dearly, my mother had terrible anxiety. Oh my God, I'm having a breakdown. And I learned very quickly, can't talk to mommy about feeling. My father was a tough guy from New York City. Son, toughen up. I learned from an, another message from my dad. Don't tell daddy because he's just going to tell you to toughen up. You can't tell your daddy how you're feeling because he'll think you're weak. And so what happens is that you get trapped with your feelings. And I see this everywhere I go. My story is my story. Everybody has their own story. I always say you don't need to be abused to realize that the only person who really, really cared about your feelings was you. And so, you know, we go through lives, whether it be with our friends who we don't tell our true stories too, or our partners in life. And we don't feel like we can be honest and authentic because we're afraid that we may be judged or we may be misperceived and the list goes on. And so the title permission to feel is important to me because I feel strongly that it's the first step. It comes before learning the skills of emotional intelligence. Do I feel like I can be my honest, authentic self with everyone across all contexts. And that's a big ask. But I feel that without that happening first, the next steps just don't happen. Yeah. So permission to feel is the starting point. It's the starting point. Are you a parent who allows your child to be their true, full feeling selves? Are you a partner who allows your partner to be their true, full feeling selves? Are you a boss who is open to every emotion that your employee is experiencing. And I don't think we're there yet. I'd have to agree with you on that, Mark. What a beautiful question to lead us to the end. Is there anything else that's fitting, fitting way to close our conversation? Something that's just stirring in you to say? What I would say, you know, is that you heard me say that I'm on this journey to create an emotion revolution, which means that I am looking for the revolutionaries to support me on this journey. So what I would ask is that your community strive to be the next generation or the current generation 
of emotion scientists as opposed to emotion judges. I've come to the conclusion that there are kind of two types. There are the people who are open and curious and reflective about emotion and the people who are kind of critical closed. There are people who want to get granular and specific and then there are people who is like, it's all good or bad. There are people who don't deal with their emotions well and they say to themselves, okay, I can do this. I can get better at it. And there are people who are like, who cares? It's hopeless. It's useless. And like, whatever. And so I'm looking for the emotion scientists to spread the word so that everyone has the permission to feel. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. And for emotion, for those that want to join the emotion revolution, what's a step for them? I mean, they can read my book. I don't <laughs> like I to highly shame. recommend. I don't like to shamelessly self-promote, but when you're asked, so obviously my book, Permission to Feel, is a great starting point. And then, you know, there's so many resources on my website, which is just markbracket.com, M-A-R-C-B-R-A-C-K-E-T-T.com. And from there, you can learn about our work in schools. You can learn about our apps. You can learn about our work for businesses and adults in the workforce. And uh, my hope is that people will be curious and, and want to learn more and start talking about their feelings and not be ashamed of it. Well, thank you for your work. Thank you for your time to join us here and share with us. Beautiful conversation, Mark. Thank you, Kevin. Mark, what a delight to have you join us here today. In a few moments, I'll be back to wrap us up. Before I do that, here's today's Community Magic, and it seemed most appropriate to have Arlene Mendoza back with us again. In this week's Community Magic Moment, I've invited Arlene Mendoza to join me. And here's the reason why. I'm looking at my phone. I found this Saturday, April 18th, 2.36 p.m. my time. I live in the eastern part. This means 11.36 a.m. her time. Here's a show for you, Dr. Mark Brackett and Brene on Permission to Feel episode of Unlocking Us. Here's what you wrote. Immediately thought this podcast was so insightful and full of data and lived experience about emotional language. Had to share, my friend. So Arlene, it was that text that turned me on to Mark Brackett, led me to buy the book, and led to this conversation today. So I've got to say thank you for that. Mm, you're very welcome. What does that land with you as you hear that again, this insightful, full of data, lived experience about emotional language. I think there's a combination for me of like left and right brain all the time, continuously. And when I heard that podcast with Dr. Mark Brackett, there was a feeling and a component of satisfying both sides mm -hmm. where there's an academia and a research concept around the emotional spectrum and emotional intelligence and the expressions of feelings. And that's good and great, but it also grounds it and it brings it down to, well, so what are we going to do with all this? <laughs> that's great. And you found some great research and some insights, but there were some tangible, very relatable pieces, I think. that, And his lived experiences of bullying and... Yes. Yeah. And then his uncle, right? Who uncle I think Marvin. Uncle Marvin. So in that podcast interview with Brene Brown, he just talks about this one person who had a, a very traumatic time in his life when he was younger, helped introduce and invite like emotional feelings and expressions. And don't we all wish we had like an Uncle Marvin when we were young to help navigate that? Okay. So I love that you said that, but here is something I, yes, I do. Even if we didn't, mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. can become an Uncle Marvin, or I'm going to say Esther. Yes, yes. Intentionally <laughs> to others when we didn't have that ourselves. So Arlene, there was something I didn't get to unpack with Mark so much in our conversation, but he unpacks in his book. He references it today in the conversation, but this difference between emotional scientist and emotional judge. What has that journey looked like for you? It starts with a judgment. I think that I have had to learn around empathizing with myself, mm. around the emotional spectrum that I feel always, sometimes greater sides of the spectrum than others. But I think it's been a journey of discovery, acknowledgement, 
finding community. Mm. I'm pretty quick to judge myself, like fast. <laughs> I mean, I, I, <laughs> I'm pretty quick. But you know what's interesting, I think, is I will judge the negative emotions much harsher than if I'm joyful or happy or excited or yeah. having a great time. So I've had to learn to slow down and really Brene Brown, like her TED talk, you know, the power of vulnerability. And I think it wasn't until that language was introduced and that concept and that like Texan woman, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like, cause I can relate to a lot of just her experiences that cracked the door open into just a new frame of reference to say, Hey, we feel all these things and it's human <laughs> and they are data points. I think what my journey has brought me towards, all right, still working on it, but these emotional components are data points and we all feel them and they inform many pieces of us at all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Data points. Okay. One more question. Mm-hmm. How has you becoming more of an emotional scientist and less of an emotional judge impacted how you show up with and for others. So it, so the shift in acknowledging my emotional spectrum and being a scientist as to why I feel and what I feel when I feel, et cetera, I think has led to a more compassionate and like compassionate way of showing up where I believe I show up in general, like I've always shown up and I'm, I just have this excitement about life. But now there's a different component about, there's an understanding of myself, therefore there's a curiosity for me to understand where others are also coming from. Oh, I love that. And understanding about you uh-huh. has made you more curious about others. Right. And I want to add that we all will express our emotional landscape in different ways. And in the past, I would assume, I was quick to assume that joy, anger, happiness, sadness, elation looked a certain way and it would be expressed a certain way. And I've learned along the way that, no, (laughs) it will look completely different for others. And might we just ask and stay curious because our initial reaction might say, oh, wait, Kevin did this look, or he said this word, or is he upset? But no, maybe you're just pensive. Like, so I've just learned to slow down a little bit. (laughs) A little bit. Well, thank you for sharing this. I know it is a journey. I love that you're on the journey. I love that you're open about the journey you're on and that you share it with others and, and that we get to share it together as part of this Extraordinary Life community. And I'm also incredibly grateful that you shared this original conversation between Mark Brackett and Brene Brown that allowed me to have Mark join me on this Extraordinary Life podcast. Thank you, Arlene. Thank you. Thanks, Arlene. And thanks again for suggesting I connect or meet Dr. Mark Brackett. So how might you become an emotional scientist like Arlene is on the journey to? And how might that enrich and enhance you and the relationships you have in all domains of life, work, family? If you haven't read Permission to Feel, I heartily recommend the book. You know I won't have an author here whose book I haven't read and can recommend you reading it as well. I love this quote from the book that we talked about, that emotion skills are the key to unlocking the potential inside each one of us. Here's what I know and believe. Now, I started to say believe, but I know this. There is so much passion, potential, and purpose inside of you. Yes, especially you who might have just thought, not me. Yeah, you. I want to see it unlocked and unleashed. And now, more than ever before, the world needs to receive and is ready to receive what you have to contribute. You know I love hearing from you. You can email me, kevin, at thisextraordinary.life, 
or you can call, text, or WhatsApp me at plus one four zero four seven one three zero seven one three. My hope is that you do something today that allows you to explore, experience, and express this extraordinary life. And as you do, you will inspire and invite others to do the same. Thanks for joining me here today.